listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Soprano Emily McGee, bass baritone Greer Grimsley, and Lyric Opera of Chicago music director Sir Andrew Davis are backstage at Lyric. It's difficult to sing Elza because so much of what she has to say is spiritual and intimate and quiet as a person. And it can be very difficult to find a way to to bring that across to a huge public. You don't have the the rantings of Ortrude and you don't have the big dramatic moments. but I think that's the beauty of, of the character, and it's the beauty of what he's written for her. The humanity of her comes through this intimacy, this personal inner voice of Elsa with this, these shimmering strings and the, and the orchestration that he gives to her. It's an interesting relationship because they both are very, very strong and forceful personalities with their own agenda. And the beginning of Act Two, we see these two disparate agendas start to meld and I think that's the that's the the interesting part of it you know it's it's like making an alloy it's a, it's an amazing thing there's a lot of very stirring stuff there's great stuff for the chorus and this guy rants and raves a lot and, <laughs> and, and so so does Ortrude but there's incredible tenderness and intimacy thank you for joining us for this edition of backstage at lyric This time we're playing an audio transcript of the Lyric Opera Discovery Series session for Wagner's Lohengrin. The Discovery Series consists of panel discussions with singers, directors, and conductors from Lyric's season. Lyric does one session per opera, and they usually take place within a few days of the opera's opening. The Discovery Series is open to the public, and it is a terrific way to get up close and personal with Lyric's artists. Visit lyricopera.org for more information on the Discovery Series, including ticket information. All of the Discovery Series sessions are recorded and featured as part of the Backstage at Lyric podcast. And now let's head over to the UBS Tower Ballroom for this Discovery Series session, featuring Emily McGee, Greer Grimsley, and Sir Andrew Davis. Your host is Lyric Opera of Chicago's dramaturg and broadcast commentator, Roger Pines. Hello, I'm Roger Pines, dramaturg at Lyric Opera of Chicago. I'm really pleased that all of you took the trouble to come out on this freezing night for our Discovery Series discussion of Wagner's Lohengrin. Before we begin, please turn off all cell phones, all beepers, any electronic device that might make sound. Lohengrin is making its eagerly awaited return after 30 years, believe it or not. So those of us who have patiently waited will be rewarded with a performance that I can say flat out cannot be equaled anywhere in the world today. And our three guests 
have everything to do with the magnificence that is communicated by this Lohengrin from start to finish. American soprano Emily McGee, who's a Ryan Opera Center alumna, is returning to Lyric as Elza, and she was with us most recently as Ellen in Peter Grimes. She sang her first Elza in Berlin and has reprised that role in Munich, Zurich, Hamburg, Florence, and Barcelona, and on CD. She has starred in many other uh, international venues, including La Scala, Covent Garden, and the Bayreuth and Salzburg festivals. Stylistically, her successes on stage range from Die Tote Stadt in San Francisco, Die Frauen Schatten in Tokyo, to a wide variety of roles in Zurich, including Rosalinda, Tosca, Francesca da Rimini, and Ariadne. In addition to Barcelona's Lohengrin, she appears on DVD in Ariadne and Peter Grimes from Zurich, Figaro from Berlin, and Die Meistersinger from Bayreuth. Artelra Mund in Lohengrin, American-based baritone Greer Grimsley, debuted at Lyric as Courvenal interest on Odisolda two seasons ago. He first sang Telramund on stage at Seattle Opera. He sung it at the Met. It's one of six leading roles he's done there. And in San Diego, Mexico City, and Copenhagen. He's triumphed as Votan in Seattle, Cologne, and Shanghai, as Wagner's Dutchman in five major houses, including Berlin, Bologna, and Nancy. He has won significant praise in a wide repertoire internationally, including such roles as Escamillo in Geneva, Madrid, and Bregenz. Don Giovanni in Basel, Strauss's Mandrika in Copenhagen, and Yokana An in San Francisco and Santa Fe, and Bartok's Bluebeard in Montreal. Sir Andrew Davis, our lyric opera music director, began his lyric season with a new production of the Mikado. In addition to Lohengrin, he's currently conducting La Fanchula del West. The rest of the season brings him a lot of opera elsewhere. Capriccio at the Met, Peter Grimes at Covent Garden, Ariana of Naxos at Canadian Opera Company, Thais at the Edinburgh Festival, and Vorjak's Rusalka at Glyndebourne, where Sir Andrew was formerly music director. There are performances with nine major orchestras worldwide, including those of London, Torino, and Montreal. Sir Andrew's former music director of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, where he returned last month to lead performances of his own new orchestration of Handel's Messiah. So please join me in welcoming to the Discovery Series Greer Grimsley, Emily McGee, and Sir Andrew Davis. Here we go, the story in a nutshell. This is a tough one, but we'll see how we do. I mean, it's sort of necessary considering we haven't done Lohengrin in 30 years, so here we go. In 10th century Antwerp, Elsa of Brabant, a virtuous young noblewoman, is accused of having murdered her brother, young Gottfried, Duke of Brabant, who has disappeared. She longs for a knight to come to defend her. A knight appears in a boat drawn by a swan. He pledges to protect Elsa and to marry her. He asks only that she never ask his name or his origin. Suspicions regarding the knight are awakened in Elsa by Telramund, Count of Brabant, who is regent and Gottfried's guardian, who craves the dukedom for himself. And along with him, the scheming, the scheming comes from Telramund's wife, Ortrude. On her wedding night, Elsa's curiosity overwhelms her. She asks the forbidden questions. Telramund rushes into the marriage chamber, but the knight kills him. Before the people of Antwerp, he reveals that he comes from Montsalvat and that he is Lohengrin, the son of Parsifal. The swan is revealed as Gottfried, who had previously been transformed by Ortrud's magic. A dove flies down to draw Lohengrin away in the boat as the grief-stricken Elsa collapses. Is that all right? That's pretty much it. Well done. Way better than I could. So, um, I think it's hard 
to think of a most beautiful Wagner opera, but I'm going to anyway. Is there indeed more beautiful music per minute in Lohengrin than in any other Wagner opera? I mean, on the basis of what we heard yesterday at the dress rehearsal, that was my conclusion. How do you feel about it? You're asking me? Any of you. Uh, Well, you know, uh, it's very hard to quantify something like that because, you know, excuse me, what about... Tristan and Isolde. Well, I was thinking that, but... Yes. (laughs) But it's just, it it stunned me. It has a lot to do with the quality of music making that you will hear in this Lohengrin. I just thought, the sheer sensuous beauty of this piece... Well, I think that's true. I mean, starting with with the Forspiel, the prelude, right, which is quite unlike anything Wagner had penned before... And in a way, it's, it's curious that Lohengrin is Parsifal's son because that, you know, you hear this prelude and you, knowing Parsifal, you think, oh, mm. that's mm. where he's going to end up eventually, you know. Uh, so it has the very, very much that sure. same, same mood. And it's, you know, it's, it's, the, it's sort of um, the grail music. I mean, it's, it's, it's that, that visionary quality that it has. That's, that was new for Wagner at the time. I don't think he'd written anything like that before. And then there are... I mean, there's a lot of very stirring stuff. There's great stuff for the chorus. And, uh, um, you know, this guy rants and raves a lot. And, <laughs> and, and so, so does Ortrud. But, but, you know, there's, there's incredible tenderness and, and intimacy, you know, the beginning of the third act for, for Lohengrin and Elsa. And... and um, um, the, you know Elsa's first appearance, and, and even this scene between Ortrud and Elsa in, in the second act, which you know is where Ortrud is being a is feigning um, a sort of affection and closeness and and, and support, and, and there's the marvelous duet for the two of them, which is really quite quite glorious. But in your performances of the piece on stage, Emily and Greer, have you? found yourself struck suddenly uh, by the, the beauties of this music in sort of unexpected ways, suddenly think, oh my gosh, I'd forgotten how gorgeous this was. As so often happens, the music sometimes that I identify with the most and I'm blown away by the most is the moments when I'm not singing. <clears throat> and the first production of this show that I ever did, I was in every scene including the prelude, including the, <clears throat> the, the Vorspiel for the third act, including Ortrud Tellermund scene. So I know all the music really well. And uh, to me, the, the, the places that move me the most really are the Vorspiel mm. and the, the orchestra music and, and also a lot of the music for Ortrud and Tellermund. I think because I got to listen to it more than my own, my own stuff. Greer. Well, uh, the the things that I, I know the best, uh, I knew the first from this opera because uh, when I hit music school, music school, I'd never had any sort of formal music training. So I was this this amazing, I was this human sponge. I was in the in the music library all the time, listening to things. And one of the things that I just could not get enough of were the were the preludes for for the acts. Mm. In Lohengrin, and mm-hmm. it's it's one of the first things classically that really struck me and hooked me, um, and it still does. I just think it's incredible. And um, uh, it, it when they're performed as as uh, as it's performed here, you f- you just don't take a breath during the whole time. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. It's so beautiful. 
Um, the two of you both sing in a wide variety of styles. Do you find yourself creating a sort of Wagner sound, or does that sound just happen sort of naturally? Well, um, uh, I, I'm of the belief that you sing as you sing, and you are very dedicated to the stylistic um, uh, requirements of the music. So uh, what I change, or what I, what I respect, are the stylistic uh, qualities of the music, but I don't change how I sing, no. Um, but my first teacher, we, we spent, I mean, I had a wonderful first teacher, but we, I, I learned bel canto technique. And, and his, his thing was, to, he said, you can sing anything with this technique. And, and uh, so far, <laughs> I've, I've been able to sort of range, range through a lot of things. And, uh, and I think the minute that uh, a performer starts to sort of say, well, this is, this is how I sing this and this is how I sing that, I think you get into trouble. I think you have to have one, you have to have, your technique has to be constant. Emily, is that how you respond to this also? Yeah, more or less. I, I studied a really bel canto Italian tradition, too. I, I never thought I would ever sing Wagner. Um, but one thing that attracted me to <clears throat> the role of Elsa, which is the first Wagner that I sang, was how bel canto it really is. I mean, one can sing it with a beautiful, lush Italian sound, as Greer says, o- obeying the stylistic sort of requirements of it. Um, so I don't think I change my sound for any role that I do, but I do try to find... Um, not specifically Wagnerian, but a, a, a color, a, a character for each role that I do. And sometimes that's a bit different. If you can somehow put that on top of your normal singing technique, that's what I, what I try to find with each, with each role. And Elsa is no exception. I'm, I'm very <coughs> glad that you have used the phrase bel canto, the two of you, because um, my article in the program is called Lohengrin Wagner's Bel Canto Opera. Very, very pleased about that. And one thing, um, I th- we didn't read that beforehand. <laughs> one thing is that you don't necessarily hear in performances of, the, of this opera. You don't necessarily hear the roles of Telramund and Ortrud sung by truly beautiful voices. And so that's one thing that's completely revelatory in our Lohengrin is when you hear Greer and our Ortrud Michaela Schuster, they are absolutely singing those roles in a bel canto manner and yet with tremendous drama at the same time and that's one thing that I thought was quite overwhelming Mm. yesterday was to experience that now Andrew in the same vein how would you characterize the sort of sonority that this opera requires from the orchestra I mean is it the same sound that you would ask them to produce in the later operas of Wagner well Wagner's style evolved over, I mean, to an extraordinary extent over his whole career. And if you look back to, well, the first, what I consider to be the first great Wagner opera, or is, is of course, Dutchman. And then, uh, and, and then, you know, comes Lohengrin, which is a huge step, actually. Um, but it's interesting you talk about the bel canto because, you know, there are moments in. I'm sorry, I'm not talking specifically about the orchestra now, but there are moments in um, um, in Dutchman mm. where you see a very strong Italian influence. Eric's aria, for instance, yes. is sounds like Spontini or something. You know, I mean, it's, uh, uh, so there and there are so many influences on Wagner that that were gradually more and more assimilated. So the early ones, you see, you know, you see the influence of Meyerbeer and Mendelssohn. 
And Mendelssohn, in, in my opinion, remains an influence. I mean, I think the Rhine maidens are quite Mendelssohnian in some ways. Mm-hmm. Well, you can even say, you know, there's a Mendelssohn overture called Die Schöne Melusine, the fair melusine, which starts. And now, if you know, if it had been, it had been like. Um, um, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Puccini stealing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> stealing from Puccini, and actually, you know that you know that um, that uh, the Puccini estate got some money out of Andrew Lloyd Webber. We don't, unfortunately they settled out of court, so we'll never discover how much. But you know, Mendelssohn could have done the same thing. But um, uh, I digress, as usual. Um, no, I, I I think I wouldn't say I specifically asked for different sounds from the orchestra. It's just that there are moments. In, in a Lohengrin that, for instance, have, where the orchestral sound has to have more edge than, than necessarily would happen later on with Wagner, where the sound becomes mm. tends to be more um, sort of... I don't know what the word is, fat. Now, <laughs> that can do better than fat. But, you know, um, uh, where the sonority... I mean, and it depends to a certain amount on, on, the, on the subject matter and the dramatic situation. But there is there is still a, a kind of I mean there are lots of sforzandos and fortepianos in 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 Lohengrin that, that tend to sort of disappear later on that where the sound becomes more sort of arching in, in a sense but that that's also to do with the whole structure of the music but I do think that um, and there are some extraordinarily clever touches in the orchestration for instance um, the music uh, the sort of that opens the prelude that comes back in in in, in, in Lohengrin's big monologue. Um, what we hear are divided violins in four parts, um, which has this shimmer. But accompanying his aria, and this is something you you don't really notice, except that the, all of a sudden the violas are divided in four parts, doubling the, the four violin parts, which gives this wonderful kind of intensity to the sound. It just changes the colour in a way that's sort of very subtle, but but enormously effective, psychologically and everything everything else. And the wonderful trombone writing, soft trombones accompanying the um, the violas and the cellos in that, which, which is... I mean, it's a kind of sophistication in the orchestration that was gradually developing... Uh, in him that that uh, is quite remarkable. As I say, it was a huge jump. Um, you know, everyone tends to think of Wagner repertoire as loud above all, yet there is a really a great deal. This is another revelatory thing about this production of Lohengrin. There's so much in this opera that is exceedingly intimate in terms of scale and expression, so I think that requires some discussion from the three of you so that our audience will know what to listen for in that particular regard. When you think of intimacy in Lohengrin, what are particular moments that come to your mind immediately? Well, (laughs) for Elsa, uh, for my character, I would say the greater part of of my role is written in an intimate, personal way. Um, style, you do have to have enough juice for the big moments in, in the in the ensembles, but it, it can it can almost be frustrating to sing. It's difficult to sing Elsa because so much of what she has to say is is inner and 
and spiritual and intimate and and quiet as as a self as a as a person and it it's very it can be very difficult to find a way to to bring that across to a huge you know to a huge public you don't have the the rantings of ortrude and you don't have the big dramatic moments um but I think that's the beauty of, of the character, and it's the beauty of what he's written for her. The humanity of her comes, comes through this intimacy, this personal inner voice of Elsa with this, these shimmering strings and the, and the orchestration that he gives to her. And there's, there, there's a, a lot of very beautiful wind writing that accompanies you, yes, too. Yes, you know, it's a, and he's very good at... Of writing, I mean, there are whole sections where the strings are silent and, the, and just the woodwind mm. and the horns play, which is. Again, and my quite... second act aria is, is really yeah. accompanied by 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 the winds. Yeah. Now, does, does Telramund Greer have moments of that kind of intimacy? I mean, not that oh, kind of not sure. the shimmering uh, strings, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not it's not the the type that that he writes for Elsa, but you do have you do have those introspective moments, uh, fleeting though they may be. Um, with this particular character, but you still, I mean, you still, I, I, you know, you have to mind them. And I think that's where a lot of people just sort of get into one mode and they just go with this character. And it's so easily done that way um, rather than taking the time and really sort of looking at it and taking those moments back that you can. Um, and it all, you know, it's, it has to do with, with and letting the text sort of show you where to do that as well. Yeah, there's there's an intimacy in, in yeah. the scene, your scenes oh, with water. It's a very different kind yeah. of you know they're yeah. they're not they're not yeah. newlyweds, but um, <laughs> <laughs> it's quite evident. Yeah. <laughs> but but it's it I mean it's a fascinating relationship and a very tight relationship mm-hmm. even if it's as it's sort of edginess. And I think that, that that's a marvelous thing about it. The, the two of them played that scene fantastically it's, well. It's amazing. Um, I'm wondering if any of you, I mean, Andrew, you've done this in Bayreuth, and, and Emily, you've done it in German houses where they probably sit down and discuss a great deal, maybe too much. Yes. Um, so I'm wondering if you've engaged with any of your colleagues in productions of this opera or with scholars about symbolism in Lohengrin. I mean, is there something behind this unaskable name or behind the swan, or do you think those things ultimately don't matter very much? The latter. <laughs> <laughs> or, else we'll, or else we'll be here for six hours. You know, I think, you know, I think with Wagner operas, you, you, there are so many levels that you can start analyzing on. Um, and uh, uh, with this one, I mean, uh, with a basic uh, historical thing, you can see that it's a conflict between Christianity and, and pagans. And then you can go a step further and 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 look at it as as you know uh, outsider as opposed to to the accepted group, and then that sort of leads you into how Wagner felt in the musical society, and that he was he always felt that he was the outsider trying to push the envelope, and and that's sort of a theme that sort of runs through a lot of his operas, and then you can even go further into that. But uh, yeah, I think the symbolism is there. His idea about doing opera was to hearken back to the Greek tragedies. Mm. And oddly enough, you know, a swan is a symbol, was a symbol that was, you know, used in Greek tragedies as well as a very magical thing. Yes, it's, it's interesting about the swan, isn't it? I mean, uh, uh, that, uh, I mean, you know, the usual, we'll forget the usual jokes, you know. When does the next swan arrive and all that stuff. <laughs> but, you know, the, the swan, the fact that 
the swan has always been regarded as a very special creature, and I'm not quite mm. sure why. Now, for instance, in England, you know that actually, officially, all swans in England <laughs> belong to the Queen. <laughs> <laughs> so... You know, if you if you kill a swan, you're you're you're, you're committing treason. I don't know quite what about, but 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 you know there is this uh, one of my favourite songs of Orlando Gibbons is this beautiful, um, wonderful poem, the Silver Swan, because that's this this legend that swans before they die will speak, or mm. you know, the the silver swan who living had no note when death approached unlocked her silent throat. Leaning her breast against the reedy shore, she sang her first and last, and sang no more. Mm. Farewell, and I love the end of this, farewell, O joys, O death, come close mine eyes. More geese than swans now live, more fools than wise. (laughs) 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 And and actually, there's a a fantastic, wonderful uh, song by Grieg. Have you ever sung that? In Svana, which is oh. an orchestral version, yeah. which is, uh, again, and there's something of aura about the, this song that has this, the, same, the same feeling. And the fact that, you know, the swan in, is, in this opera is transformed into, into um, you know, Gottfried. So in productions that the three of you have done, what sort of different versions of the swan have there been? Because every production obviously has to take care of that whole problem a little differently. Well, yeah, I've seen a little swan boat carrying in a large tenor that some, <laughs> sometimes sort of squeaks in and sometimes stops. And um, I've seen a lot of backdrops of paintings of swans. Um, in I did one production where Lohengrin comes in with a a swan puppet, more or less, that he has to make move while he's singing. It looks like a real a real swan. I've seen them all. I've seen all kinds of swans. Yeah. Well, in the production I did at Glyndebourne, which is um, Keith Warner production, the... Uh, By, you said Glyndebourne? Byro- uh, Glyndebourne. I'm always doing that. Glyndebourne, Byroid, you know Same what I mean. Uh, no, I did the... <laughs> they haven't done, they haven't done Lohengrin and Glyndebourne yet. Um, this was... Uh, the Godfrey person appeared at the end carrying a dead swan. Oh, yes, that's oh. right, right, right. A black dead swan. Well, the whole thing was black. Um, so, which I didn't quite get, I have to say. But, uh, no, I mean, it's, uh, I think it's partly because of the idea of having um, uh, him appear in a boat drawn by a swan, appeared so, to so many directors as being so sort of ridiculously quaintly 19th mm. century, mm-hmm. they had to do something yeah. radically different. I, I, I mean, the, my first production of it, we, uh, there was a robotic swan, which accompanied the tenor along the bank of a river. Um, and it was quite lifelike, actually, except for the whir of the, the motor. <laughs> yeah, there's, um, there's always then, something. <laughs> yeah, and then at the end of My Liebe Schwan, you know, uh, it backed up and then took off, um, which I love. That was my favorite. Yeah. Emily, you've spoken very eloquently to me before about the humanity of this character of Elsa. And you said something that actually stayed with me, which was Elsa and Lohengrin are meant to be together, but they can't because he can't be completely human and she can only be completely human. And that sort of says it for me right there. I just think this is incredibly important and I'm wondering if you can expand a little on how you came to that conclusion about the character. 
I think there's a, uh, there's this imposition on Elsa that she can't ask the question of, Lo- of Lohengrin's name. And what woman, what human being could give herself emotionally or in any other way to someone without really knowing, not the name, but knowing who this person is? It's, inhum- it's in- inhuman to ask it of her. And I also think that Lohengrin has this imposition put on him that he must go down and tell this to Elsa, that he, he is never allowed to enter into the human world. And when he, when he goes to her, he falls in love with her, he wants nothing more, I think, than to be able to be with Elsa, to be human. And I, I think that he, can, he is never allowed to do that, and I think Elsa... Is she can only do what she's going to do, and I think Lohengrin must know that at the beginning, and it's a it's a horrible emotional tragedy for them both, because there there's there's love there's instant love between them, but they're they they are just meant to be completely different f- forms of life, and I and I think I think that all has to go back go back to Wagner as well, his his feeling of being an outsider of not being able to. You know, enter into the world of his peers. I mean, there, there's there's so many levels that you can look at it, but I look at it as a woman, as a human human woman. I, I think one of the things that's so beautiful about this production, and and I have to give real credit to Elijah Mashinsky for this, is that the um, <laughs> the scene at the beginning of Act 3 for, for Lohengrin and Elsa is incredibly touching and, and is done with a, with a um, subtlety and a tenderness. And you see the, the real love in Lohengrin and the fact that he, he is torn in a way that I, th- I think is very seldom achieved. I don't know. I mean, I know you, you enjoyed working on... Very much so. And Lohengrin is usually... The character of Lohengrin, the tenor, is not usually given that freedom. You know, he, he's usually sort of this authoritarian, sort of, you know, alien, religious, godlike like being. And we don't... It's hard for us to understand why there's this connection between Elsa and Lohengrin. If he's such, if he's so demanding and so, so inhuman, why why is there this connection? And I I love to see it played, uh, as our as our production does with the tenor, also wanting to enter into this love relationship. It's a tragedy for them both that it ends the way it does, rather than just for Elsa. I think it makes a much much better drama, much better show, much more interesting show. Yes, and after all, he does say very clearly, Elsa, ich liebe dich, mm. and, and, and in a way that, you know, he's not just yeah. pretending. I mean, I this, is, this is very real, and so the, the, yeah. the, the, this, there's this incredible um, electricity in their relationship, I think, which what I'm saying comes across mm. in the way you, you two play it. There's another crucial relationship on the stage, and that is between, between uh, Ortrud and Telramund. So... Doesn't he marry her on the rebound when Elsa rejects him? Well, yes. I, I, and you have to sort of look at the time period, too. There was, I mean, it, it, people talked about romantic love, but as romantic marriages in, in, that, in that station, that happened very rarely. And he was, and uh, Ortrud is also a princess. And uh, he was, he, he was uh, hoping, actually, 
that this would just work out with Elsa and, and you know, the fact that her brother went missing and she didn't know where he went. It, it didn't look good. Um, <laughs> and uh, this, it's an interesting relationship because they both are very, very strong and forceful personalities with their own agenda. And the beginning of Act Two, we see these two disparate agendas start to meld. And I think that's the... That's, the, the interesting part of it, you know. It's, it's like making an alloy. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. Yeah, and they come together at the end of the scene yeah. in this marvellous um, <laughs> passage they sing in octaves, this kind of... Um, oh, yes. ...beschwerung, where they, yeah. they, they swear that this is what they're going to do, uh, which is a remarkable moment because it's not very often you hear Wagner's singers singing in octaves. octaves. I mean, it's just a purely technical thing. So it it has a special kind of incantatory almost quality to it. And and again, there are so many clever things about this. The the way this scene ends, and it's a long scene, you know, you have the the scene between the two of you and then Elsa and Ortrud, and then um, you come back Mm -hmm. at the end. Um, And then, then we go into this fantastic moment where you have distant trumpets answering yes. each other which is an, another moment where you really s- uh, uh, sort of hold your breath because yes. you know what's going on and then it goes into the big scene where the chorus comes in uh, and and the, and the big scenes are very exciting the, the mm. writing for the chorus is is fabulous and uh, and difficult <laughs> <laughs> when I was talking to our orchard Michaela Schuster about the character one thing she said I wanted to see um, how you felt about this career she said they're not good for each other on one hand and yet they need each other on the other hand does that sort of fit with your yeah, thinking I mean they they need each other uh, and th- they also uh, 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 I mean they they supply uh, the energy to get what each other wants you know it's a very symbiotic relationship whether or not you know whether or not they would last oh another thirty years who knows uh, but uh, you know with the divorce rate who you know the odds are against them um, but but yes it, but it, it's it's uh, it, it's two forces that are um, at first, diametrically, really diametrically opposed, once you find out what her agenda is all about, and his is all about his honor and doing the honorable thing. Uh, and, uh, and then they, they come together with, with a plot to, to, for him, he thinks, to regain his honor. And she's, you know, going to find out what this whole magic stuff is with Lohengrin. In the various productions that you've done, has there been still something romantic left between them that you can see on well, stage? I don't, or? You know, it, the thing is, is that it's not, it's it, the, um, and I think we achieve this, have achieved this best here, is that it's not, it's not a romantic uh, magnetism. It's a pure physical magnetism. It's, it's, you're seeing, you're seeing two feral Humans um, coming together, really, and and it's it's that sort of thing. It's it's from need, from from need and necessity, as opposed to you know what Lohengrin and Elsa are dealing with, which is this this esoteric and this 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 beautiful spiritual love. You know, this is this is very earthbound and necessity driven. Um, now, Telramund is killed in the penultimate scene, but 
are we, we're supposed to be we're supposed to come to our own conclusions about what happens to Ortrud? Uh, yes, I, I, as far as I know, that's that's uh, that's sort of what how we've sort of staged it. But I mean, you sort of have to. As I, I think we were talking about this, uh, uh, is that you have to sort of look at the historical uh, uh, record, and um, uh, Ortrud is is a pagan uh, uh, priestess, and um, and once Christianity moved into these areas, you pretty much. You know, lost any sort of form of this religion. So, you know, you sort of know historically what happened to her. Right. Um, Emily, I've always wondered about Elsa's demise. I mean, doesn't it just say in the in the libretto she just falls senseless to the ground? She, yes. Um, <laughs> she falls lifeless to she, the ground. So, you figure she dies of a broken heart, or I, I, I figure that she simply ceases to exist. I, I think. I think that her whole being, her her soul, is wrapped up in this situation with with Lohengrin, and I think when that falls apart, despite seeing her brother again, she just. It, I don't think it's a death of grief or any. I just think she ceases to exist. Have you been asked to play it different ways depending on the production you've been in? Uh, yes, but I think pretty much I always, <laughs> I always end up in a lifeless heap on the floor if, if I. <laughs> If I remember correctly, I'm trying to think, but yeah. Mm. There's a nice touch at the end of the production, and I wrote, where where we get this feeling that the Lohengrin is is again cut off yeah, yes. and alone. Where he would like to come into the yeah. into our world, which world is again. actually a very clever interpretation mm. of the final music, where you have this by his sort of you know his triumphant music, so to speak, which starts and after about four bars, it starts to diminuendo, mm. and and acquire this rather sort of extraordinary, unsure of itself character, mm. which is. You know, uh, which is a one, and that, it's a real marvelous sort of symbol of of him again, sort of retreating and 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 being cut off. I think it's very beautiful, actually. Uh, Wagner, Andrew gives singers incredible support, but usually the orchestra is revelatory on its own. Um, I want. I was wondering if you could talk about two different lengthy conversations that are so integral to this piece, the one between Orchard and Telramund at the opening of Act Two, and then Lohengrin and Elsa, you know, the bridal chamber scene. How is the drama in both of those cases really reinforced and strengthened by the orchestra? Hmm. Well, first of all, the opening of the second act, um, you know, I mean, the prelude to the first act is, uh, we've discussed, and of course the, the famous prelude to Act Three, which is... It's, it's, it's marvelous to walk in the, into the pit and launch into that. I have to say, but the uh, beginning of Act Two is is very it's a, immediately a very strange world. It's in F sharp minor, but you don't really know what key it's in because the cellos start, <laughs> and there are all these strange intervals. We don't know where we're going, so we're in this this world of uncertainty and and um, ambiguity. But then. Um, Several of the motifs start appearing, and those themes kind of unify this whole scene, as they do throughout the whole opera. But, I mean, we haven't got to the point with Lohengrin of the kind of 
incredibly complex and subtle light motifs that we see later in The Ring, where every tiny sort of cell of music has some extraordinary psychological and phys- you know, significance. Uh, but this is definitely a step in that direction. Uh, and um, so the, the, orchest- the orchestral color in the whole of the opening scene is uh, has this sort of darkness, but also there's a sort of shimmer about it. It's hard, hard to describe. It's, it's a sort of surreal quality in a way. Now, you're talking about the, the, the love scene uh, beginning of Act Three. Um, this, uh, again, starts... Uh, f- first of all, there's one of the most magical harmonic shifts that I know. At the end of the bridal chorus, we, we have a chord of B-flat major, and then there's this extraordinary shift that takes us into E major, which is, you know, the interval of tritone, the farthest away you could be. Uh, but it happens sort of instantly, and, and, and it always takes my breath away, that moment. Unless it's happened in the previous rehearsal, the violas play an F sharp instead of an F. But. <laughs> um, uh, but, but then it's, to, to begin with, it's, you know, it's very... Uh, gently accompanied mainly by strings with you know solo lines for the clarinet and the oboe um, but then as as the as the tension increases in the scene then then um, um, then the the rest of the orchestra begins to join in and it becomes more energetic but but the transition again through this passage of, of this very gentle string string accompaniment to to the um, and, and uh, this marvelous moment when Elsa really becomes overcome with this, this her, her own need um, is although I was talking to Emily about it the other day, and it was a passage I call the Mendelssohnian passage, except because it it, it has uh, again another the way he writes for the, there's a cello line accompanying with, with sort of syncopated things for the upper strings, but it becomes something completely different because first of all it's it's sort of faster than Mendelssohn would ever written written in and more frantic um, but, it, but it, it, it really is an extraordinary example of how he's ta- he takes like a magpie from so many different composers but makes it his own and I have to say one of the most difficult things I ever had to do in my life was conduct that scene in Bayreuth and sometimes conductors do want to kill directors <laughs> <laughs> Not in this case, not at all. Uh, but I have to... Uh, I've never been so far away from singers as in that scene. It was a, the, the set went back a very long way anyway. Did, did you, you didn't see that production of Byron, did you? I didn't sing it, but I saw it. No, I, 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 yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, and they were so far away, despite the fact that I was making the strings play as softly as possible... I had to lip read because I couldn't hear them. I could not hear them. It was very, very scary. Um, so, you know, hazards one goes through for one's art. <laughs> um, Emily, you sing what I would call the, the gracious and the, the super feminine roles that a great Wagnerian of the past, uh, the late Régine Crespin, called Les Wagneriennes Blondes, the, 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 the Wagner Blondes. So we're talking about Sieglinda and Elsa, Eva, uh, Elisabeth. So is Elsa the most challenging 
of the four of those emotionally and vocally? I think she is. I, th- I think she is. I, Elsa, first of all, it's a very long evening on the stage for Elsa, no matter what production you're doing. Elsa has a lot to sing. She's on stage a lot. It's very tiring. Um, but it's also, you need a little bit of everything in the voice. You, you need a bit of the dramatic. You need that also that super feminine and even a, a, a young girlish quality at times. You need to... Uh, have enough left at the end to sort of have this emotional break breakdown, if you want to call it that, in the when the love scene falls apart. But she really is um, hysterical, isn't it's she? It's she is she she really lives a she lives a lifetime in the opera, which is with, uh, which is also what makes it such a wonderful role to do. She has such a strong arc from beginning to end, but it's it's difficult it's very difficult to to maintain that to find all the different colors and the different relationships to everyone else on stage and and sort of not fall lifeless to the floor before <laughs> before you're supposed to <laughs> you have these two famous and truly ravishing arias one in act 1 and the other in act 2 um how do their requirements differ um the the aria in Act One for me is is a little bit more of a uh, a narration. It's a bit more of a narrative. She's she's describing what she has seen. Uh, they have a similar vocal vocal quality in, in in both to a certain extent. But I think the first aria is a bit more explanatory. It's a bit more clear, and it's um, it's a strange mixture of of confusion and confidence. It, it, what does the confusion come from? Well, she's quite confident in her vision of what she saw, but she's she comes into it. She's in, under trial for murdering her brother, and she does not know what happened to him. I mean, she's she's in a state of turmoil and wanting, in a way, to explain herself, but can't. Only by way of relating this dream that she's had. But within that, she's very confident. So you, but you, so you have to find all those different colors in that, in that section. In the second act aria, it's really more of an expression. It's really the only time of, of pure, pure confidence and pure joy. And, and, and it's a much more intimate moment. She's really singing to herself and to the breezes, you know, in a, in a typically soprano romantic way. Um, but it's very exposed vocally. Um, oh, you know. Yeah. And, and, and you must Absolutely. have a relationship with the wind section <laughs> in that area. So they're, very, they're, very, uh, they're very different, even though the, the vocal demands of them are, are fairly similar. It seems to me that this, the, the role almost requires two different voices and that you need that very sort of light floating lyric mm. for that second aria. And then at the same time, what you need for the big ensembles, the finales of Act One and Two, and what you need for the second half of the bridal chamber scene is quite different. Isn't That's it? exactly what makes the role kind of, kind of tricky, kind of tricky. And you want you don't want to sing any any role. You don't want to sing the same from beginning to end. But particularly Elsa, she has so many different facets as a as an adolescent woman would, you know, and so many rapid changes in her in her feelings, in her heart, in her in her voice, her finding her voice just in time to ask him the question, which is, doesn't 
and well for for Elsa. But but you need you need all of those different voices for Elsa. It makes it very difficult. Well, Tauramund, on the other hand, doesn't really have what we would call an aria that you could pull out of context, the way you can pull both of these. So what are the moments of the role when the character reveals itself most compellingly? Well, I, 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 most of the first act, where I'm, I sort of set up myself as, as or, or I introduce myself to the, the audience as this person of honor who's, who's trying to, to get the right thing done of course, the right thing is what's best for his interest, but um, but it is in in the eyes of of actually in the function in in how how this how this this little um, uh, fiefdom works. It's the best to have someone in charge, and they need someone in charge. And so, and he's saying, "Okay, I'm the guy to do it." Um, uh, and then once he's defeated, the beginning of the second act, I think, is is a nice little is a nice little monologue. That you sort of get an in, uh, insight into how the shame of losing this battle has affected him, and then at at the end of the second act, when he makes his big claim, you know that that he that Lohengrin has used has has tricked everyone and lied to everyone, and is using and has and and is using magic, and he's so convinced. Um, most Telramuns, I think, at some point also have Votan in their repertoire, you being a very good example of that. And it's become, Votan is such an important part of your repertoire. So in strictly vocal terms, how do you compare them with each other? Oh, gosh. Um, well, <laughs> uh, this is, this is uh, the music and this all put together is basically Rheingold. Um, you know, whereas, you know, I still have Valkyrie and Siegfried. Um, uh, the, the, uh, oddly enough, I, th- I find that there's the, there's more introspection in, in, in Votan and then, uh, of course, a softer edge to the character. Um, uh, and you see a greater, a greater development of the character through the three operas in Votan as, as opposed to what you see in, Although there is there is this evolution that happens with with Telramund. but but in terms of where they sit, oh him. well, uh, this is this is probably on the on the higher end of you know what you what a bass baritone does in in Wagner. It's I mean it's it's higher than some of the Italian rep stuff. We haven't said very much about the chorus, which is incredibly important in Lohengrin. So Andrew, what makes this such a rewarding opera for the chorus? Well, I mean, they, they sing a lot, and especially for the men, they're you know in in the first and second acts, they have they have some very thrilling music, and I'm happy to say at least one occasion that they do come down to the front of the stage and do it, um, you know. And I didn't even have to do a mooty to make it happen, um, you know. He's he's very he's very famous for saying, "Come down here," you know. Um, but. Um, and, there, and, and we were talking about the ensembles just now. We referred to that, but there are some remarkable ensembles. This is wonderful. The only passage in three beats in a bar in the whole opera is this: this uh, the, the prayer of King Heinrich's prayer, and then this big ensemble that follows it. Um, and then there's another one towards the end of the second act that really are, and they always actually, I have to say, make me think of Verdi a little bit because they're like mm-hmm. contratante pieces, you know, uh, like you know the big. Um, 
what is it, the Traviata, uh, oh, yes. you know, which is also in E flat major, but it's the same, same key. Um, and not that there's anything Verdian about the music, but the fact that you know everyone stands still and, and delivers this um, these uh, ensembles in which they're all thinking their own thoughts. And, the, uh, they're just a couple of minutes longer, are they not, than, than any ensemble that you would find in Verdi? Well. No, not no, really. You don't think so? I don't think so. Well, okay. they don't seem that way to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and and they are really, and those are kind of musical moments that sort of anchor the piece. I think as well. You know, it's and especially in the first act, you you know, you've gone through a lot of narrative, and it's all you know, explaining what who people are and what's going on, and somehow that moment provides a sort of cornerstone, well, a, a, I don't know, a, 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 an architectural point in the piece that's very useful to me in trying to construct the whole shape of the, of the act. Your first Lohengrins in the theater, all, for all three of you, were very momentous occasions, I think, in different ways. So I'm wondering if you can recall what those circumstances were. You're looking at me. Um, well, my first um, Elsa was also my first role in German. It was my first Wagner role. It was my first time singing in Germany. And um, so I had to learn to speak German very quickly. No pressure, um, really. No, pr- no pressure at all. And um, it, it was... Uh, uh, one of my first engagements after leaving the Lyric Opera Center, um, and and I and I got the engagement through Daniel Barenboim, who was the conductor of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra at the time, and he brought me over there to sing Elsa, and so um, <laughs> and I arrived there not in in Germany, not speaking German, and learning Wagner with a German director, who, and I arrived the first day to rehearsal, and he said, okay, so this is my conception. The entire opera is Elsa's dream. So you will be on stage by yourself acting out all the parts, more or less. Not, not exactly so. <laughs> they will all be behind you, and you will be do it, doing the opera. It was a, it was a strange production. <laughs> so it was, kind of, it was trial by fire, and, uh, you know... I, I learned an awful lot about about life and about music during that production, and um, it ultimately went well. But you know, I, I will say that it also was something for a young American artist to to sing Wagner for the first time for a, a German audience. You know, we uh, Chicagoans haven't heard Lohengrin in the in the Opera House in thirty years, but in Germany, they hear it quite often, and and they know it very well. You know they know they know all the words. You know they 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 know every recording. They've heard every great Elsa since you know the beginning of time. And um, it was it was a lot of pressure, but it was it was wonderful. And I also remember um, uh, at at that time I was being considered to sing at the Bayreuth Festival also for the first time. And so before we even opened Lohengrin in Berlin. Uh, we were in one of the final rehearsals, and I saw a white-haired man come in to the theater and sit down, and the, the man looked an awful lot like Richard Wagner, and it was, <laughs> it was, in fact, his grandson, Wolfgang Wagner, who had come to hear my rehearsal, and so that 
added even more pressure to it, uh, <laughs> to the situation, but um, it all went fine. He liked what he heard. And no, I, it, I learned a tremendous amount by that experience. Greer, you did your first Telramund on stage in Seattle, correct? Yes, um, and it was my first Wagner as well. <laughs> um, and I was still not quite convinced that I should be heading into that repertoire. Um, uh, and the way they do things is that uh, uh, they had two casts of us, and it was a very specific staging for this for these uh, this production. And um, things were going aw- going along well, and we got down to uh, production week and got away a, a day away from from opening, and the uh, the second cast fellow became very ill, and so. Uh, Spate Jenkins, who runs Seattle, came to me and he said, "Do you think you could you could do you know the rest of the performances?" And being fairly ignorant uh, <laughs> at the time, I said yes um, because they, in order to get anyone in, uh, at, it, it, you know, there would be no way to, to sort of ha- have someone learn the staging so quickly. And and so I said okay, and that involved me doing opening night. And the next day, doing the matinee um, of Lohengrin. And I ended up doing, actually, in the span of seven days, I ended up singing five Lohengrins. Um, and so I thought, at the end of it, I thought, okay, I think I'll sing this stuff. <laughs> now, Andrew, your first Lohengrin in the theater was at the Holy of Holies, as it were, the Bayreuth Festival. Well, yes, that in itself was uh, very unexpected to me because, uh, you know, I, as you know, I, I came and started as music director here in the year 2000, and one of the things that lured me here was the carrot of the ring that was dangled in front mm. of me. Um, and uh, at that point, uh, you know, I'd, I'd been music director at Kleinborn for 12 years, um, I'd done a lot of Mozart and Janacek and the smaller Strauss, well, some of the bigger Strausses too, and the other opera houses. I conducted at Covent Garden. And, um, but as far as Wagner went, I, I hadn't conducted a single Wagner opera when I arrived here. I'd done Act One of Valkyrie in concert. I'd done um, what they call bleeding chunks from the ring. I always like that. <laughs> um, um, bleeding chunks. And, you know, some, some of the preludes and, and overtures. I'd done the prelude of Liebstor from Tristan. Um, and, and so my first Wagner complete opera was The Dutchman here in the 2000-2001 season. And then the next season we, we did Parsifal, but, uh, which remains for me the, the greatest of all the operas, but that's a very personal thing. Um, so, uh, and I'd never been to Bayreuth, but I wanted to hear Parsifal in the Festspielhaus in Bayreuth before I conducted it, because it's the only opera that was written after the Festspielhaus was built, and Wagner knew what the acoustics were. So there's something about the orchestral sonority of Parsifal that's quite different. I mean, it's partly the subject matter, but it is a very different score in terms of how the orchestra sounds. So I had arranged to go, uh, and then about three days before I was going to be there... I had a call from my manager who said that the Va- Mr. and Mrs. Wagner want to talk to you. And I said, oh, well, that's nice. Why? And, and any particular reason? And they said, well, they would like you to conduct 
Lohengrin there next year. And I thought, what? (laughs) I've conducted one complete Wagner opera production. That doesn't qualify me to conduct a Bayreuth, does it? (laughs) Um, And actually, I think this was all the fault of Jim Johnson, who uh, was on our music staff for many years and and is now retired and... Um, uh, and he had he worked at Bayreuth for for many years too, and he had apparently what had happened. It was Tony Papano. Antonio Papano had conducted, I think, uh, the the Lohengrin for two years, and Bayreuth still theoretically likes to keep conductors and casts throughout a run, which they'll often do four or five times. Um, and then and Tony got the position of uh, music director of Covent Garden. And he asked to be released, so that's why they needed somebody. But Jim had said to them, well, well, we've got this guy here who seems to know what he's doing. So, <laughs> so, so I went to this meeting, and um, uh, I think there were just uh, the Wagners and myself, and, and Jim was there. And um, um, she uh, spoke uh, in very good English, uh, and he chipped in occasionally in German. I didn't understand a word. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not fluent in German by any means, so I can, you know, I can rehearse with orchestras and, and, and get by. I've never specifically really studied it. But um, so we came out afterwards, and I said to Jim, Jim, I'm sorry, I did not understand one word that, that Wolfgang said. And he said, don't worry, most Germans don't. <laughs> Uh, for the simple reason that, that he, he and this area of, um, of, of Bavaria is called Franconia, and they have a very special dialogue. And he, he's a dialect, and he speaks, he spoke, excuse me, um, a very, I mean, a very broad Franconian dialect, and it's true that most people find him very difficult to understand. Ironically, his mother was English. Oh, yes. That's yes, right. that's right. What can I tell you? <laughs> anyway, I went there, and uh, it is a remarkable place. Unique in many ways. We haven't said very much about what this production is actually going to look like. I think, first first of all, it's incredibly atmospheric. I mean, the lighting is magical. What do the two of you wear? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, not surprisingly, um, am in white. Um, it's, it, it's, it's really, it's medieval time mm-hmm. period, quite, quite traditionally medieval costumes, very beautiful, very sort of Romeo and Juliet-like, <laughs> um, but medieval, and yeah, very beautiful, very simple uh, costumes for Elsa. And yeah. Greer, what do you have I to- have, uh, it's very traditional uh, uh, Night of the Realm wear. Um, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it, you know, I have about four or five layers of, of clothes on, um, and plus I have my, my sword as well. Um, and in the second act, I, I'm, because I lose the fight and I'm, I'm uh, rebuked and, and thrown out of the society, I have my black robe on, but, but just so that I, don't, that I don't miss wearing all those clothes, that has about three layers to it, and it's wool. So, um, you know... So we're carrying around a, quite a bit of weight. Well, <laughs> that actually brings me to my last question, which is for all of you. 
Um, I'm sure that I was not the only person in the audience at the dress rehearsal yesterday who felt sort of caught up physically in the sounds that were emanating from that stage, and I was just left completely in awe of what I was hearing and thinking, good grief, I mean, I can hardly imagine the physical stamina that it takes to sustain a performance like that through four and a half hours. So let me just ask, what is your routine when you're in rehearsal and then in a run of performances of a Wagner opera, at least one of this length? I mean, do you prepare physically in a way that you don't for other repertoire? I think you need to a, a little bit. For for me, not every... Uh, I don't sing that much Wagner. I sing some Wagner, and I sing a lot of other things. Um, and I'm happy when an opera is, comes in under three hours. To me, that's, you know, that's <laughs> the perfect show. Tosca, Yanufa, yeah. let's see, there are yeah. a couple. But um, no, but I think when it's such a such a long show, you, you have to prepare yourself a little bit differently. You have to eat more, you have to... You have to be more physically active during the day. You have to sort of warm up like you would for, for a workout in a way. It's very, it's very physically tiring just standing on the stage for four hours. And you also spend a fair amount of time on the floor in this production. I do. <laughs> I do. I guess what would a wilting heroine be without uh, ne- lots of kneeling and lying down on the stage? Oh, yeah, you get to sit down at least. I, I don't yeah, that's do, true. I, don't. Yeah. I, do, I do get to rest my feet. That's true. That is true. All right. I've always wondered about that and how sopranos figure out, because I remember the first Wagner I ever heard was Die Valkyrie, and Leonie Riesenich as Sieglinde <laughs> did the entire hallucination scene flat on her back, and I thought at age 11, I sat there thinking, how does she do that? <laughs> so are there certain things that one learns? Pilates. <laughs> oh, oh, really? <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> well, a little bit, yeah. Because, so there are certain <laughs> tricks that one can learn technically to sort of to make the sound when one is on the floor I suppose. no you you can and you and you learn you learn as you go i mean i i didn't know how to i didn't know how i would make it through elza the first time i did it and i remember very of course i was younger then i maybe had more energy but i remember being more or less laid out the day after you know each each performance of lohengrin and then the next day i was just in bed the whole day nearly not so much that way anymore but Greer, do you go into training for uh, for Telemundo or for, for Votan for that matter? I live in training. So, you know, but oddly enough, I mean, it's sort of a side effect, but it's a, that I discovered once I sort of started on the road and, and I would go to the, uh, I would sort of do some sort of fitness along the way, but it was more, I would say, more for sanity than vanity. But this, this, the, the, Side effect of that was that um, you know that that I, I found that it also sort of helped with stamina, and that's the biggest thing with with what we do, and it, and more so I find, I mean not that we don't invest in the in the text in in other other operas other than Wagner's operas, but there is there is a, a, a huge emotional and physical investment in the texts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and singing this stuff that that I find does not come that you don't use in um, other other uh, operas. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as I mean, it, with this, I mean, I think you do have to. I mean, whatever you can uh, ingest that sort of helps you with that, and you know, you become this this uh, living experiment because then you you try different things to see. Okay, does this stay with me? Does mm-hmm. this help my energy level? And it has to, and you, uh, you have to be very um, uh, athletic about it. 
You know, it's a very, very much a, uh, an athletic event. I call it. My wife calls the Wagnerian repertoire the heavy lifting of singing, um, uh, and and not that it's plotting, but it does require it does require you know uh, strength uh, behind behind what you're doing on stage. And of course, that goes for the conductor of a piece like this as well, considering it's probably twice as long as the longest symphony that you would conduct. I would think. Mm. Yeah. So, are you, do you go into training for your Wagner? Uh, no, um, but I do eat slightly differently. I mean, I tend to, for instance, um, usually I I have a routine that if we've got an evening performance, I, I have lunch on the late side, and then I take a nap. I always do that, and then I go to the down. To the, what I do with Wagner is I usually eat a little bit early. Well, the operas usually start a little bit early, of course. <laughs> um, and then I, so I eat lunch sort of not too late. And then I take a nap and then I get up and I usually eat a baked potato. Mm. Um, I don't know, I need some carbohydrates at that point mm. with olive oil and salt. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. And then my yeah, lifeline yeah. is always bananas. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Banana, I, you yeah. know, usually I, in, in a bit, I'll, eat a, I'll eat a banana in each of the in, in yes. intermissions. In, in Banana's a perfect. Yeah. The perfect well, intermission. Well, I, I can't overemphasize <laughs> the sort of golden age quality of this Lohengrin. It will be something that you will, I think, want to come back and hear more than once. It's one of the great things that we've done in the 15 years that I've been at Lyric Opera, and all of you who adore Wagner, and I assume you all do, otherwise you wouldn't be here, will have a glorious experience, so I want to we, thank... We should, say, we should just say something about Johann Botha. Because, oh, yes. Uh, oh, yeah. This, I mean, he is unbelievable in the role. I mean, he has, of course, great reserves of power, yeah. thrilling, thrilling high notes, but he also sings the tender music with a, with a sweet and beautiful quality, beautiful legato that is an object lesson to, to any oh, yes. and, and And this, this, this sort of depth of, of character and variety of, mm. of, of, of tone that he can produce is very seldom yeah, heard in, in Wagner in tennis especially. Oh, it's very wonderful. And having, having uh, uh, lived through being in cast where the tenor attempts it, you know, um, it's so wonderful. It's so wonderful to hear someone just so totally own it. We also have a wonderful German bass, Georg Zeppenfeld, who is our King Henry from the Zemperoper in Dresden. We have Lester Lynch, who all of you heard in Porgy and Bess at Lyric. He is our herald. It's an incomparable cast. I've uh, mentioned Mikhail Schuster, our orchard before. And you will have a great experience. So thank you, all three of you, very, very much. You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org. Yeah.